Why don't you stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, and I went up because of a revelation, and set before them, though privately through those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might be bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed influential, what they were to me makes no difference, for God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw it, had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he had worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would illuminate your word to us, that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would feel me, fill me as I proclaim your word, and that you would fill our hearts as we all try to receive it, that you would help us to hear it and to understand it, and then you would empower us to apply it to our lives and live differently because we have had an encounter with you in your word among your people. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. I was at a friend of mine's wedding, and we were standing around, you know, waiting for the bride and groom afterwards to kind of leave in the processional. So, you know, we're all getting lined up to throw the party favors at them. And I was standing around with some people that I didn't really know, kind of making small talk, which is not necessarily something I'm really gifted at. Um, but so this woman is sitting next to me, someone I'd never really met before. I knew they taught at the high school that I went to, but I didn't have them. And they were talking to me, and they were just very 
engaged and seemed to, to really want to be having a conversation with me. And it was, it was very strange, um, not because that's unusual, um, but they just, they seemed to just be really interested in what was going on in my life. And so I was telling them, but yet their reaction was almost confused. And I said, well, yeah, so how's school? Oh, great. You know, went out here and, you know, now I'm living in Texas and Dallas. And they're like, really? And it was like they were and so the conversation was just very strange. One, because they were really interested in talking to me, but I didn't seem to be giving them the right answers, but I didn't, I didn't have no idea who this person was. And so we talked for about 10 minutes, and then, you know, the couple comes out, and they leave, and then they walk away, and then I go back, and I'm like, who in the world was that? Like, what is going on? And they come to find out, well, they thought that I was my brother, my second youngest brother, who we, we kind of look alike, but we're pretty different. We're definitely very different in our life trajectories. And so that explained quite a bit of their confusion as to why I was married and going into seminary and doing all of these different <laughs> kind of things. But, and they were one of his former teachers. So you think they would have been able to recognize him, um, but apparently not. But it, some things like that can happen, can't they? When you don't recognize somebody or when, you're, when you don't or when, when you're not recognized somebody, it can lead to confusion. Well, even more importantly, if you don't recognize the gospel when it's right in front of you, that is going to lead to much more serious confusion. And so this morning, we, we talked last week in kind of this whole series in the book of Galatians, we're going to be talking about distortions of the gospel. We're going to talk about all the different ways that people misunderstand the gospel, misapply the gospel, abuse the gospel, or totally miss it in all these different ways that they distort it. But this morning, what Paul hammers us on in these verses is the undistorted gospel of Jesus. He wants us to be sure that we recognize and can understand what the true gospel is. And so this morning, what we, what we have here is we have three ways that we can recognize the gospel. Three characteristics, or, or three ways that we can see that the gospel, the undistorted gospel, the true gospel from Jesus has these. And the first way that we can recognize it is to recognize that the undistorted gospel comes from God. The undistorted gospel comes from God, and it comes from God alone. It doesn't come from man it doesn't come from a particular school of thought. It doesn't come from a philosopher. It doesn't come from any kind of invention. It is the divine revelation revealed by God and God alone. And Paul makes this clear in the beginning. In chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. This is not mankind's gospel. This is God's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul preaches this because Jesus himself appeared in the sky and told him what the gospel was. He, doesn't, he didn't learn it in seminary. He didn't even gain it from the other apostles. He didn't learn it by trying to study the scriptures himself and, and figured it out on his own strength in his own power. He had a divine, miraculous encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. That is where the gospel came from. And this is an important point. It's an important point not just for us, but for the church in Galatia, because they were missing this and they didn't understand it. Part of the opposition they had was not just to the gospel, it was to Paul in particular. They were saying and proclaiming things like, well, Paul's just a second-rate apostle and his gospel's not very good. You need our gospel. We've got the good one. And Paul is saying, look, this is not my gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus. 
This is the gospel that comes from God and Jesus alone. And so this is why he goes into kind of his resume or his background to explain where he's coming from. Verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Well, that's quite the former life, isn't it? And he's not just being humble. He was violently trying to destroy the church of God and annihilate it. He was trying to wipe it off of the face of the earth. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This is his background. Paul is a man who murdered Christians. Who murdered them. Who dragged them out of their homes. Out of their gatherings where they gathered like us this morning to worship. And had them stoned and killed. Because he wanted to do away with it. Christians probably prayed for his death, if not his judgment, that God would stop him. This is Paul, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The grace of Jesus and the grace of God is not just for the deserving the grace of God is not for those who are kind and who are nice and really good neighbors. Paul was a murderer, but there was grace. Paul wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He wanted to kill anyone who loved Jesus, but Paul could not escape the grace of God. And you can't either. There's a lot to unpack here, but part of what Paul is saying, why is he saying this? If I was a murderer, I would not bring that up. I would hide that fact. Okay, that wouldn't be the first thing I bring up in a letter to churches, especially. So why is Paul doing this? What Paul is trying to say is how unlikely it is that any human being from his background would come to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Why would somebody who hates Jesus become one of his apostles? Why would they invent it? Why would they come up with this? Why is somebody who is high-ranking among the religious elite of his day abandon it? He's climbed higher already than any of those his age. He's young and he is on his way up and he is moving faster and faster and faster. He's on the fast track to getting to be in charge. He's got everybody's respect. He has incredible influence at a young age. He's on all the you know, top influential people lists. Being a Christian would mean walking away from all of that. It would mean abandoning it. It would mean turning his back on his, his career, his power, his social circle, all of that influence, all of that gone. Why would he give that away? And not only did he lose that too, but then he's sent by God to preach among the Gentiles. This zealous Jew is now leaving the company of the pious, godly Jews who have always followed God, who do things the right way, whose culture is the way that it should be, who have the right values, and he's going to go live with the Gentiles, the very people Paul spent most of his life probably hating and definitely avoiding because they were unclean. Now that's the people that he's supposed to go be with. It makes no sense that Paul would do this unless... He had a radical encounter with God on that road to Damascus. Paul then goes on to understand that he wants to make sure the Galatians know that this gospel didn't come from the other apostles either. That he received it independently from Jesus. That he was commissioned by God and God alone. That's why he spends so much of these time in these verses saying things like in 16, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. 
He didn't ask the apostles to explain it. Verse 17, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He sent three years in Arabia. That's his training time, his discipling. He spent there learning and meditating on Jesus and the gospel and the scriptures and reading all of those things that he already knew, but now reading them because he knew they were about Jesus again. And this is significant because Paul is trying to say, my authority as an apostle did not come from Peter. It did not come from John. It did not come from James. It came from Jesus. Your Savior is also my Savior, and He commissioned me. Jesus is the one who appoints apostles over His church. Not Peter, and certainly not us, and definitely not ourselves. And so I get nervous in case anyone starts, you know, referring to themselves as an apostle. Because that's something only Jesus gets to do. And Paul did, but he says, I did go and I spent some time with Peter in verse 18. After three years, I went to Jerusalem and I went to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. I wish I was there for that, just to be a fly on the wall. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. He sees them and he spends time with them, but they don't give him the gospel. They don't change anything that he's been preaching. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was unknown to the persons of the church in Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said. They only heard rumors that, hey, that Paul guy, the guy who used to try and persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. He's trying to show again his gospel, it comes from God, not men, not other churches. He was disconnected from the Jewish church world and even the world of the other apostles. Other churches had just heard of him through the grapevine. You heard of what's going on with this Paul guy? Yeah, I heard about him. He, you know, he killed my friend. Well, now he's a preacher. Now he's an apostle. He's preaching the gospel. All of this is just to lay down the fact from Paul that this is the undistorted gospel from God alone. He's the ultimate source. What does that mean for us? Well, it's a reminder that ultimately the gospel that we receive, the gospel that we believe in, it has to come from God and God alone. It, it cannot be, the gospel must come from God to you. Being a Christian doesn't mean you grow up in a Christian family. It doesn't mean you just grow up in the Bible Belt. It doesn't mean you got to you know, sign a good card or you, you subscribe to certain cultural rules or values. Being a Christian means that you embrace the gospel of Jesus as it comes from God and God alone. And it has to match what God said. That you believe that Jesus Christ really is the only way to salvation. And if you'd say you're too far gone, well, you certainly can't be any further than the Apostle Paul was. Murderer of Christians, hater of the church murderer of elders and pastors, and yet he set me apart before I was born, before he called me to your grace, even before your birth, before all of our births, for all of your shameful sin. God set you apart for him. God chose you, and he wanted to extend his grace to you, and he sent his son to die for you. And he died, and he lived, and he was resurrected before any of us in this room were ever even a twinkle in our parents' eyes. Embrace and believe the gospel. Now, this is the first way we can recognize the gospel is it comes from God. The second way is that the undistorted gospel, it has no additions. The undistorted gospel has no additions. These next nine verses in chapter 2. Now, despite the fact that Paul's gospel came from God alone, okay, despite the fact that he's trying to say, I didn't get this from the other apostles, I didn't invent this, 
Despite this, he's saying, I didn't add anything and they didn't add anything either. My gospel is exactly the same as theirs. That's what the whole, this whole section is about. Nothing has changed. So Paul, after 14 years, in the beginning of 2.1, he says after 14 years, which is 17 years total, because before in 1.17, he mentions the three years that he was in Arabia. Under these 17 years of proclaiming the undistorted gospel of Jesus, he goes to have a formal meeting with all of the apostles in chapter 1. So after 14 years, I being again, I went to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I took Titus with me. Now I believe that this chapter describes the Council of Jerusalem that you can read about in Acts 15. In fact, I'd, I'd encourage you later today to go sit down, um, read our passage this morning again, and then go read Acts 15, and then maybe read this one again, because you'll get kind of some different perspectives on the same uh, meeting. But so this council is a gathering of all of the apostles, all of the leaders in church, and they gathered around to talk about the gospel and to talk about the Gentiles, talk about what Paul had been doing. Because some of the Jews were coming and starting to argue, you know what, yeah, that's nice that these Gentiles have put their faith in Jesus, but really they need to follow our list of rules. Really they need to stop being Gentiles and they need to come be Jews, because this is the way it's always been. Well, sure, any Gentile could come and profess faith and become like them, but that was even in the Old Testament. But the rules were you have to come and be a Jew. You have to come and be circumcised. You have to come and live in our cities. You have to come dress as we do. You've got to live, and basically you've got to turn away from your Gentileness and become a Jew. And they're saying, well, yeah, sure, Jesus, but that hasn't changed anything. you still got to come and be like us. You still need to follow our rules. So Paul goes in verse 2, and he says, I went up because of a revelation. It seems like God, Paul is commanded by God, and I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed to the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running and had not run in vain. So impartially he's going to make sure, hey, we're still on the same page, right guys? All of us apostles commissioned by Jesus, let's compare notes and make sure our gospel hasn't been distorted in any way, shape, or form. But he does seem to say something strange, right, in verse 6. And he says it there in 2 when he's talking about the other apostles. When he mentions, you know, from those who seemed influential, you know, what they were makes no difference to me. For God shows no partiality. Those, I say, seemed influential, added nothing to me. On the surface, it almost seems like Paul doesn't have a high opinion of the apostles. Right? Like he's saying, well, I don't care who they are. That's a way that we can kind of read that. Well, I don't think that's what he's trying to say. He's not evaluating their personalities. Okay? He's not evaluating their influence or even their office. What Paul is talking about in the context here is the gospel. And the gospel and the gospel alone. He's pushing back against the notion that the apostles should be venerated or lifted up higher than they are. They're still human beings. They're not sinless. They're not supernaturally holy. And our ultimate fidelity or our ultimate loyalty should be to the gospels. Not to men, not even to the apostles. And really our loyalty to the apostles is because of their loyalty to the gospel. We follow them as they follow Jesus. Because we're trying to follow Jesus. But we see, you know, there's nothing to worry about in this meeting because in 7, on the contrary, they didn't get together, they didn't argue, they didn't have disagreements. They saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised or to the Gentiles, just as Peter has been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised or to the Jews. The apostles approve of the, mess, the gospel that Paul has preached and is preaching. They say, Paul, you're preaching the exact same thing that we are. You're just preaching to a different audience in a different context. The message... And the doctrine is the same. 
And notice the word too, entrusted. That it says that is they, I had been entrusted and Peter had been entrusted. All of the apostles have been entrusted and handed the gospel, not from themselves, but from Jesus and from God. And they recognize Jesus has called you, Paul. In verse 9, when James and Cephas, being John, or Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave us the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They're embraced, they're celebrated, they recognize they're on the same team, preaching the same gospel, and there isn't any additions or changes. And this point can't be skipped over. Paul did not add anything to the gospel. Paul did not add anything to the scriptures that changes anything at all that Jesus said. Not a single word. This is a common objection to Christianity these days. Because most people will say, oh, Jesus, yeah, I really like Jesus. You know, it's that Paul guy I've got a problem with. Jesus was nice, and then Paul went, and they made up a bunch of stuff about Jesus. Say things like, well, you know, he started, then he made up this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Or they'll quote Jesus and they'll hold up Paul as the boogeyman. And they'll say, you know, well, stop quoting Paul so much. You should just quote Jesus. If you're quoting Paul, that's a red flag. I can't trust you. Or they'll go so far to say Paul hijacked Christianity. Thomas Jefferson even said, you know, the first Paul, the apostle, was the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. People don't like Paul very much. They'll say, you know, well, Jesus and what the apostles taught is different than what Paul said. Say, Paul invented these stories. But Galatians says no, and Paul says no, and James and Peter and John say no. Paul didn't change or add a word or a thing. Proclaims the same gospel that we did. He didn't distort the gospel. He came after 14 years, and we compared notes. He's preaching the same thing that we are. And the same thing as Jesus preached. The gospel does not change. It doesn't have any additions from individuals. It also doesn't have any additional legalistic requirements. There's not a list of things that we have to do in order to receive salvation. Great, you put your faith in Jesus. Okay, here's your to-do list. Make sure you do these 10 things every day or you'll lose it and you're going to hell. That is not what our faith means. That's not what we believe. That's not what Paul taught. That's not what the apostles taught. That's definitely not what Jesus thought. But there are some who wanted to add to the gospel. That's what... There are some who tried to force Titus in verse 3 to be circumcised. They said, great, well, you say you're following Jesus. Following Jesus, you've you got to be circumcised or you're not really one of us. You can't be saved if you don't do this. Look how Paul talks about it, though. He says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. But to them, we didn't yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul says this issue of circumcision it is significant and important. He doesn't just say, oh, sure, Titus, whatever. Like, let's just get them off our back. He calls them false brothers who are trying to bring them into slavery, who are affecting the truth of the gospel. They are distorting it. Because they wanted Titus and really all the Gentiles, sure, put your faith in Jesus, but then come and here's our list. Follow the Mosaic Law. Come and be like us. Don't convert to Christianity. You also got to convert to cultural Judaism. But Paul refers to them, he calls them false brothers. He doesn't say these are Christians, but you know, they just disagree with us on some secondary issues. He says they're not believers. They're pretending to be sheep. They're pretending to be our brothers and sisters, but they are not. They're not preaching the gospel of Jesus. 
They're not preaching the gospel of the apostles. And this has to be true today as well. Our gospel has to be the same as the apostle Paul. It has to be the same as the apostles. It has to be the same as in God's word. And it's got to be the same that Jesus preached. It does not change from age to age. It does not change from place to place or country to country or throughout the centuries or the millennia if the Lord tarries. Our, our cultures change, right? Our contexts change. The way we live out the gospel looks differently here than it does in other places in the world. If Paul showed up on a Sunday morning, he might be a little freaked out on what our service looked like, right? Especially all of our, our technology, and he'd probably have a hard time understanding us because I don't think he spoke English. Fairly certain he did not. But if he could, he would hear, I hope, the same gospel preached that he proclaimed to the church in Galatia. And he would see, yes, we might be doing things a little differently, and maybe we believe some secondary things differently than Paul does, but we embrace the same undistorted gospel that he did, and we are following the same Jesus. The gospel cannot change. It cannot be added to. It does not shift. The undistorted gospel must remain the same. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, does the gospel that I believe match with what the apostles taught? Are we adding things? Are we adding requirements that the apostles did not add? Are we telling people, well, now you're saved. You must do this. If you don't do this, whatever this is, then you're not really in the kingdom. We need to ask and make sure, too, that those who claim to be from God, they preach the same gospel that the apostles preach. They don't preach something that's different, that has bonus stuff. Do those who claim to be from God agree with everyone else that we know is from God? We don't have to question if Paul and Peter and John and Jesus preached the right thing. We know they did. So then the question is just as what you're hearing today, does it match what they said? What we hear other places, does it match there? To have an undistorted gospel, it cannot have any additions. Our, our last characteristic, though, is that the undistorted gospel does have application. The undistorted gospel has applications. Now, there's a difference between an addition and uh, application, or an addition and an implication, right? The apostles do not say, right, or they do say that nothing's required in order to be saved other than faith and faith alone. They don't add anything to Paul's gospel, but they say something really strange in verse 10. I don't know if you caught it. Maybe you did catch it and you didn't like it, so we just you skipped over it, but I'm going to focus on it. Verse 10, so after this, they said, yep, our gospel is the same, only they asked us to remember the poor, Remember the poor. They remind Paul that an important implication or an important application of the gospel is remembering and caring for the poor. This is the only thing that they press on Paul. But Paul says he already wants to care for the poor. Why? Well, he has the same gospel. It's not new information for Paul. It's something, yeah, of course. He kind of says, duh, guys, yeah, this is, I believe the gospel. This is what we do. But what are you to make of this? Right? If we were them, this is probably not the first thing that would be on our list. We might add, okay, Paul, well, make sure that you teach good doctrinal classes. That's really important. Or make sure, Paul, you, you go to these cities. We need you to hit that region. Now they say, Paul, make sure that you remember the poor. 
And why do they say that the gospel has this application, especially a particular application that would lead to us carrying the poor? Well, part of the reason here is that a gospel that has no application is a distorted gospel. If you have a gospel that doesn't have any implications or any implications for your life at all, then you've missed it. If you think that all you can do is say, yep, believe in Jesus, pray a prayer, let me sign a card, I'm sure I'll even get baptized, jump me in some water, and then I'm out, and nothing changes about your life whatsoever, you never apply it, then you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten the book of James. And some seem to think this is our job as Christians, right? We just preach the gospel, just preach the gospel, and that, that's it. Just preach it and believe it. It's all you need to do. We, they, we can act like those in James 2 who see the hungry and the needy. And we pray for them. We say, God be with you. Hope you repent. And then we smack them on the back and say, see you later. And they leave just as hungry as they were when they came before. Or like the goats at final judgment in Matthew who are condemned to hell for an eternity because they don't feed the hungry or clothe the naked or visit the prisoner. Partially a gospel that not just doesn't have any applications, but a gospel that doesn't care for the poor is a distorted gospel. And a gospel that doesn't actually change our life is not really the gospel because the gospel should change everything about us. And it should impact radically how we interact with human beings. If we recognize that we have been given grace by God, if we realize the depths of our need for grace and the depths of the grace that we have received, it should lead to us giving that grace to others, whether we think they deserve it or not, because none of us in this room deserve the grace that came from Jesus. And if you know that you didn't deserve it, how in the world can you withhold grace from someone else who doesn't deserve it? What do you think that you got? So there's a danger here, a gospel that rejects any kind of application. It's a gospel that resists life change. It's a gospel with no repentance. It's a gospel with no righteousness. It's a gospel with no Jesus, ultimately. It's a gospel that follows, is willing to follow Jesus with your mind, but not your body and certainly not your heart. But there's a danger on the other side of this too, isn't there? We, we, we're sinful human beings. We, we tend towards sin. It just depends on which ditch we like to fall in. Some of us on the other extreme are tempted to embrace the gospel with legalistic implications. As you notice too, he says, remember the poor. That's what the apostles say. But they say, remember the poor. They don't, they don't say, here's exactly how you must care for the poor. The apostles themselves, they don't give out a list of rules on here's how it needs to be done and make sure you do it this way because this is the way that we do it as Christians. They just say, remember them, care for them, act on their behalf. And this isn't because they don't have any. The Old Testament's full of rules of caring for the poor. So what we're going to do on Wednesday is go through and see how this is a, the a large theme throughout Scripture. This isn't just randomly added. The Old Testament, the law has all of these ways and these lists of here's what you do when you are harvesting things. Here's how you give. Here's how you need to be paying special attention to the poor that are among you if you're following me. And it's filled with judgment and condemnation for those who mistreat and take advantage of the poor. But the apostles don't remind Paul of any of those laws. They don't tell him that, hey, make sure you follow this one. Make sure that you do this. They don't give him legalism. Instead, they, there's a priority. They say, don't forget to love and to care for the poor. And there's a temptation, right, to be legalistic about it, to say, well, give me some rules. What does it mean? How do I do this? 
That's a trap. You know, does this mean that I need to give money for everybody who asks? Maybe. Does it mean that I should never give any money? Should I give money personally? Should I volunteer with many of the ministries or nonprofits in town that care for poor? What about homeless people who are asking for money? Should I only help the best one? I help those that deserve it. The apostles don't give us rules. Okay, and I'm not going to give you rules either because that's not, I think, to some extent that distorts the gospel. But it's a reminder, and they're reminding Paul, that embracing the gospel, it means changing his relationship with the poor. It's not one out of obligation anymore. It's not one that you must do all of these things because that's what Moses and God told us to do in his commandments and in the law. It's no, you can do this freely. But it also means you're not free to ignore them. Okay, some of us like rules, honestly, because without them we struggle. Okay, I can be like this. I like rules because I want to know where the boundaries are. Tell me what you expect of me, and then I'll really, too, I'll decide if I want to do it or not. Um, but then I know how far I can go in kind of my disobedience. So if you just let it be a free-for-all, I don't know what to do. I can kind of run around like a chicken with my head cut off. Some of you are like that, too. Okay, but some of you are not like that at all, and you love not having rules, because if you don't have any rules, then you don't have to do anything. <laughs> all right, well, there was no rule. You didn't give me a rule. I had to care for the poor, so perfect. I will do nothing. And I've done it because there's no rule that you can point to me say that I didn't do this. Okay, with the apostles here, what their words imply, they're saying that caring for the poor is an application and it's an important part of the gospel. And we can't ignore this verse simply because we don't like it. And I also don't think that we should sit here and qualify and explain it and massage it away enough so that we never have to obey it. That's a really poor way to read scripture is if you're always coming to things and thinking, well, okay, I don't like that. So how do I get out of having to listen to this? Instead of letting it pierce your heart and confront you and say, well, how am I not listening to this? The gospel has to change us. And as believers, we should be people who care for the poor. This was something that marked the early church. It set them apart the way that they loved each other and the way that they loved those that the world looked down on and wanted nothing to do with. And at a deeper level too, we, we know that we have been transformed by the gospel via the way that we are applying it and the way that it has changed it because the gospel must change the way that we live. It must. If you encounter the living God, if you have been born again, you were dead in your sins and now you are alive, now you are a different person, if you've been given the gift of eternal life, it should change you absolutely. It's not just a ticket in the back, your back pocket that gets you out of hell and gets you into heaven when you die. It transforms us now as human beings into citizens of heaven. We should begin to see the world through the eyes of the kingdom of heaven. We should be having heavenly and gospel priorities. And none of this should be legalism. It shouldn't be motivated by rules, but by love. We should care for the poor, not because we're commanded to, but because the love of Jesus has so transformed us. Because we recognize that all of us are poor and in need, and God saved us, and now we were poor spiritually. We are in debt of our sins. We could never escape. There was no one else to blame for our predicament. It was our fault, and ours alone. And every opportunity we had to get out of it, we just kept making worse and worse choices. And yet, Jesus paid our debts and Jesus rescued us. He adopted us into our, his family. He gives us new life. He transforms us and he gives us the heavens and the earth when he returns again. And none of that is anything that we deserve. 
And if all of that is true, that should change the way that we live, especially the way that we care for the poor in the world. So this morning we were just talking about the, the undistorted gospel. How do we recognize the gospel that comes from Jesus? Well, the undistorted gospel, it comes from God. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It doesn't have any additions. It doesn't have rules and regulations, and it does not change depending on how the culture feels about it at the time. But it does have application. It changes the way that we live, not by those who are trying to do a checklist and follow rules, but those who are motivated by love of God and love for those that God loves. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, I think, this morning is are we embracing the undistorted gospel? And really, too, have we really been changed by the gospel? And we should ask ourselves the question that Paul has asked, too, do we remember the poor? Whatever that looks like. Let me close us in prayer as we stand to worship our Savior one more time in song. God, I ask that you would convict us, Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm convicted in trying to preach this. I, I'm convicted in my own lack of remembrance or care for the poor. I'm convicted of my tendency to want to create um, arbitrary legalistic rules about here's how we do it, and so as long as I do this, then, then I've made it instead of examining my heart. Lord, I ask that you would, you would aid us. Lord, because we, we, we can't live out the gospel on our own. On our own, without the Holy Spirit, without your help, we're going to fall off onto a ditch, either on the side of legalism or the side of rebellious sin. We need your help. Would you help us? Would you aid us, Lord? And would we remain a people who are committed to the undistorted gospel, who believe what Paul preached, who believe what Jesus revealed, and who live it out in our lives? And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior through song once more. I hope when the roll is called up that you will be there um, because of your embrace of the gospel of Jesus. I want to, before I read our benediction, I just wanted to, to mention that um, I manuscript my sermons, so I, I write them out. I, I try not to, to just read it, but I follow it fairly closely. Um, so if that would be helpful for you to have a copy of that, um, if you would like a printed copy, because I know sometimes I can talk too fast or too quietly, um, just let me know, and I would be more than happy to, to print off copies for you um, every week. So just come and talk to me about that. Uh, but our benediction for this month is from the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and may the love of God, and may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Go in peace.